Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to study your, your word. We ask you to guide and lead as we examine this section. And just thank you for the opportunity to come together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking at starting at verse 9. We're continuing the section where he's talking about discipline and rebuke from the Lord. And so in verse 9 it says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastising for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that which are excised thereby. Therefore, lift up, holy hand, lift up the hands which are hanged down, and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths of your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without no, no man shall, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. We're going to stop there and just go through some of this. So he starts out, he's talking about God's discipline before this, and then he brings the comparison. He goes, furthermore, we have had fathers of the flesh which have corrected us. So he says, the loving fathers that we have, that we actually see corrected us. And he's trying to draw that back to God, the heavenly father. Uh, because too many times people reject the discipline of God and feel like he's abusing, attacking me. You know, why could God let this happen? And most of the time it's because we deserve it. Uh, now it's not always the case, but most of the time it's because we deserve it. And he says, you all had earthly fathers. <laughs> And he goes, they corrected you, and you gave them reverence or fear or honor, whatever term you'd like to use in there, that you didn't, you didn't go attacking them and saying, oh, he's, he's you know, <laughs> trying to abuse me. Now, in our day and age, discipline oftentimes is attacked back by the kids with this, I'm being, being harmed by my parents because they're not recognizing this very thing that he's getting ready to do. Discipline is to correct us so that we don't make mistakes in the future. And Satan does not like discipline. He likes mistakes being made over and over again. So he's trying desperately to destroy the family layout, the whole idea of di uh, discipline. Our schools, our public schools are in a total disaster because the teachers have no backing from the, from the staff. If you send a child in most schools, if you send a child to the principal, they, they will come back to you and say, why can't you control your class? And we hear that over and over in the prison. That a lot of those teachers come because they're tired of having no support from the school system. They're, they're expected to be able to control their class when the parents don't care, the administration doesn't care, they're being told to be disrespectful and, and these adults don't know anything. And then they expect the teachers somehow to keep order in a class in a class where nobody nobody supports them and they wonder why you know why can't these teachers control their classes well you've got to have some support from someplace and if you watch commercials it's really 
one of the things that is driving me nuts is how they're telling kids to go tell your parents these things. You know, they're at making advertisements now. You know, for you know, unpopular things with adults, aiming at the kids and saying, you're smart, you go teach your parents. And if you watch them closely, that's what they're basically saying. They don't come right out and say, you're smart, go teach your parents. But if you listen to them, go tell your parents they need to do this. In other words, your parents are too stupid to know that this is good. You need to go press them for it. And they're reversing, they're turning everything upside down from the way it's supposed to be. And this is happening in our world over and over again. Now the Bible tells us that in the end days, good will be called bad, bad will be called good. They're going to turn discipline upside down. Uh, everything that is godly is going to be turned on its head. And we look at this stuff and we go, how can all this stuff be happening? But it is that sinful nature within man that's being un hinged from God's word and his standards so that people can make up their own rules and say that they're good. And this was known by God. God knew that it was going to happen. The last time it happened completely, he judged the world with a flood. And as we keep moving in this direction without a revival, we're going to hit the rapture and the tribulation period coming up. And it's on one side, a happy time for us as Christians. But a sad time because there are going to be many in our families that are not saved that are going to, have to go through the tribulation period, and it's going to be a very harmful time. It's going to be a hard time in this world for everybody who's left behind. And, you know, if you've watched the, well, read the Left Behind books or watched those movies, it doesn't even show what it's going to be like, you know, at all. And they, both of them are pretty, pretty hairy with, you know, what's going to happen. But they, when you read the Bible, they softened it so much that so people would actually want to read the book and watch the movie. Uh, it's kind of like the passion, you know, when it came out. And everybody was griping. It was so violent, so vicious. And I went to the movie thinking I was actually going to see a real portrayal of the crucifixion. And I'm going, what was their problem? There are slasher movies with more violence and blood than this movie. You know, and, you know, because all the, you know, all the anger and the bitterness, I was expecting to see literally what the crucifixion of Jesus was going to be like. And, you know, and I've, I painted the picture, and I don't know that I'd want to see a movie showing the, the true uh, picture of what Jesus went through. But, you know, but with all the bitterness and everything, I'm going, oh, this must be really close to the real thing. And I went there, and I'm going, what has all the anger been about? You know, because I, I knew what he went through, and I'm going, this is, you know. But the problem was most Christians did not know what he went through. They don't understand the price that Christ paid for our sins and how awful it was. And so we look at these things and Satan is turning this world upside down and unhinging God's truth and his, his word. And the churches are attacking the issues instead of the root cause. Satan, Satan is smart. He's going after the root. He's going after the word of God. And what do we do as Christians in most churches? We go attack the problems. We attack abortion, we attack euthanasia, we attack homosexuality, we attack transgenderism, we attack uh, theft and all these things. But the real problem is the lack of the word of God and his truth and his moral standards. We've got to go back to bringing up his standards to people and out of his standards come 
the stopping of abortion, the stopping of uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, and, and all the other problems that are, that are out there. But we go after the right problem uh, and go after the root of the problem, not the symptoms of the problem. And so we see, and this is kind of what he's saying, you all had fathers that did these to you, and, you, and he goes, you reverence them. Shall we not much more be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? And this word subjection uh, is the same word that is often transmitted, uh, transformed as be subject to or be in submission to. All right? The Greek word is hupotasso, which means to abide under. And it is a military term that talks about that you obey those above you. And it has nothing to do with somebody being better, better or worse than, than somebody else. Many times, the, the guys that are being in, in, charge, in charge in the military aren't the greatest people. All right? uh, and sometimes, the people under them actually get things done better and can get things done uh, more efficiently if they were just left alone. But you follow the instructions of that person above you. And my dad used to tell us about what they used to do to these ensigns coming out of the academy and out of the colleges. If they came in humbly, those chiefs would make sure that those guys looked good. They would do everything and kind of recommend we should do this. If they came in thinking they knew everything and were the greatest thing that hit, the, hit them since sliced bread, my dad said they did exactly what they said. And would they let the, almost the entire department just fall apart? <laughs> obeying the commands of the guys that thought they knew all the answers. Which is kind of insane that this guy comes in, he's fresh out of the academy, he's had four years of academy training, no, no physical, and he's going to try to tell people with 20 to 30 years of experience how to do their job. And yet, many of them did because I'm the, I'm the ensign, I'm, I'm in charge here, you're going to do things exactly because I know how to, I learned how to do it in school. And this idea of submission here is we're submitted to God. And in this case, it is that God is greater than we are and is great. But it's also the same word that's used to be in submission to our boss, be in submission to our, uh, for wives to their husband, to each other, uh, to the pastor in a church. It's the same word. It's not saying that you're lesser and you're not important, but it is saying that God has an order for things to be delegated in. And he goes, we live in submission to God. And this is very important. And when we come across something and we go, God, I just don't understand this word, the answer to come back to is we're, be, we're to be submitted to him and be subject to his word, even if we don't understand it. Because bluntly, we're not under, able to understand everything that God wants to have done, and we need to learn to be in submission. And the good news about being in submission is you're protected. In the military, if you do what you're ordered to do, even if it's wrong, not legally you know, illegal, but the wrong, wrong decision, and you go, well, sergeant told me, the lieutenant told me, the captain told me, and that is an actual truth, you're protected by that, by that uh, authority, that chain of command. And same thing in God's kingdom. If we're under submission the way we're supposed to, we're covered by that submission. And we're told you know, that the teacher has more responsibility because they have taken on a position of authority. And they are at a greater judgment for going off the deep end or leading people the wrong way, but they're also the protection for people who are doing things the way they were told to do it. 
And if we go outside of that authority, then we no longer have the protection of you know, being in submission. And this is an interesting thing for us because the word submission, none of us really like. You know, we don't mind being the one everybody submitted to, but we don't really like to be submitted to others. And it gets hard sometimes, especially if you think you're better, smarter, or, <laughs> or know better than they do. It's really hard to be submitted at times because you're going, well, they're doing everything wrong. And that's part of my problem out at the prison. I, I'm pretty good at submitting to them, but I look at everything they're doing and they do things so stupid sometimes. If there's a wrong way to do things, that's the way they're going to do it. If there's a nonsensical way to do something, that is the way they do it. All right? I'm looking at it and I'm going, okay, this is what you want done. I'm going to do it. I sure can't understand. Now, granted, I don't know every single part of it, but I've been in management long enough to know that there are some things that they're doing that are just dumb. <laughs> you know, I don't even have to know everything about it. I just know there's some things that are dumb. <laughs> but I've also learned submission over the years and say, all right, this is what you want done. I'm going to do it. And I keep doing it. You know, that's the way they want it done. I'm going to do it their way. And so this is what submission's all about. Even when you think something's dumb and stupid, and, you know, if it's illegal or, or immoral, that's another story. But when it's just a dumb idea, and it's really not illegal, you know, it's just not the best way to do things, you stay submitted and, and work within it. And you know, the good news is, even in the military, the lower ranking can you know, question what's going on if they do it with uh, softness and humility. You know, they can't come up, hey, Sergeant, I think you're doing the stupidest thing in the world. Why are we doing this? It's not going to work. But you might be able to go, Sarge, I think this is a better way to do it. Why, why don't we do it? Why don't we try it this way? And if he says, okay, it sounds good, that's fine. If not, you do it the way he said to do it. Uh, but, you know, we've got to be able to understand. And my dad said many times, he went up to the, the ensign or lieutenant, said they didn't think it was. They said, do it. He did it the way they wanted it done. Uh, but he was a chief. He tried to get them to do it a better way. But he also knew his place in the, in the ranking system. Uh, and this is what this word submission has as an, as an overarching part to it. It's not that they're better than you, smarter than you. It is that they have a different rank and position than you. And that rank and position is what's important. Or as the military says, you salute the uniform even if you hate the person that's wearing it. <laughs> You know, uh, that rank, that rank on, the, on, the, on the sleeve or the shoulder <laughs> is what you paid attention to. The guy, the person inside that uniform might have been a total jerk and an idiot, but you said they have a rank and that, ha that rank has to be honored. And this is what that word for submission is all about. Uh, you know, and hopefully in the church we have people that we respect in, our, you know, in those positions. Uh, for they... Speaking of their fathers, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. So he's saying, your fathers punished you for a short period of time. You know, the time that you're a child. Back then, about 12 to 13 years. In our day, 18. Uh, they, for a short period, disciplined you or chastened you or disciplined you after their own pleasure. What they wanted. Now, hopefully they were a good father and they chastened you in things that were good for you as well. But that's not always, the, always true. 
leaders do not always make the best decisions in every, every decision, and their correction isn't always the best correction. But he says they were doing their job, they were doing it for a short period of time after what they want, but says, but, going back to the Father now, but he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So when God disciplines us, it's not for anything he needs because he doesn't need anything. And this is the problem we have with God. We go, well, God, you're just being mean to me because you want to hold me down. Why would he want to hold you down? He owns everything. Why would he want to hold you down? He doesn't need anything from us. So everything he does for us is for our profit. Now, the problem is we don't recognize it's for our profit. Just as true discipline is for the profit of our child, we don't want our child making the same uh, mistakes over and over and over again, so we discipline them. And the problem with discipline is that it has to be hard enough to be painful. And that's been you know, kind of blocked in today's world. Don't cause pain. Well, it's not discipline if it doesn't cause pain. Whether physical or emotionally or psychologically, it must cause pain that says, well, last time I did this, you know, go back to the days when we used corporal punishment, I couldn't sit down for the entire night. <laughs> uh, I don't want that to happen again, so I'm not going to do it again. Or last time I did this, I couldn't go watch TV in my bedroom for a week. And I've said, you know, it used to be we sent kids to their bedroom to punish them. Now we actually probably should punish them to have to spend all their time with mom and dad, not go up to their bedrooms. Uh, your punishment for this week is to go everywhere I go except for work. You go to school, I go to work, and the rest of the time, you're with me. That would be the discipline. It would be a discipline for the parent, too, but, <laughs> but it would be discipline for the kid. Uh, but all of this is, what is the profit God is trying to do? And he says right here, it is that we might be partakers of his holiness. God's purpose is to perfect us, to make us more like him through the discipline he gives us. And this is, when we look at what's going on in our life, we've got to start looking and saying, and I've said this many times, when things go wrong in our life, our first thing to look at is, have I done something that deserves punishment? Without getting too, too you know, restrictive, because we're all sinful, fallen people, and we've all got problems. Right, if we look hard enough at our life, we'll find lots of reasons to go through everything that we go through. Uh, I thought the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. I <laughs> said the wrong thing. We can find plenty of reasons for finding it. But, you know, God is not sitting there saying, okay, well, you said the wrong thing, and it's one time, you know, so now you're going to really pay for that one. He's looking at what is really going to harm us, and he wants to change us so that we'll be righteous. And we look and say, okay, God, I've done something wrong. I repent forgive me. If we can't really find anything wrong, then we just say, okay, God, teach me what it is I'm supposed to learn from this, because even in those activities, he's trying to teach us and perfect us into holiness. Job went through all those activities that went on in his life. God's testimony of him, he's a perfect and upright man that hates evil. But even with that testimony, at the end of the book, He's teaching Job how much he did not understand about God and bringing him deeper into righteousness and holiness so that he learned the same thing that this is saying. All right, I did wrong. God's going to bring me into holiness. 
I'm being tested and tempted by Satan because I am so right, you know, basically a righteous person. And God is still going to teach me more about his holiness and his righteousness on the other side of it. Why? Because no matter where we're at, we need to learn more about God. We need to learn more about his holy and righteous living. And this is where we are going to be with God. God says, I'm going to teach you. I want to draw you closer, deeper into me. And the closer and deeper we fall into him, the more we realize how sinful we are and need to get more righteous and holy with, with him. And this is what his, all of his discipline is about. Every time he lets something happen to us, he's trying to teach us, I want more of you. I want you to know me deeper and better. And this is the one thing I've learned, you know, simple 41 years, 51 years of walking with God, to get to know him deeper and better with everything that I go through. Now, I'm not saying any of it's fun. Matter of fact, none of it's fun to have him put me in places where I'm having to learn that I'm not where I want to be and I'm not what God wants me to be and end up having to go through something hard to get there. But we look at it and say, God has a plan. This is why Romans 8, 28 is so good to me. For all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. My goal is, God, show me how this is for my good. I want to just see it. Now, many times I don't recognize how it's for my good until a long time later. Sometimes I get to know right off the bat. Other times it may take years before, he, before I finally realize oh, that is what was good about this. This is what you were trying to teach me. But we need to be able to look at our lives and say, God, what are you wanting me to learn? Because our flesh and our soul rebel against God at every opportunity. Because that is who we are deep inside without Christ. And the more he rules in us, the more he crucifies the flesh and the soul, and the more we become like him, to be able to walk in his ways and will never be just like him because we've got, he is so he is perfect absolutely and we are not perfect but we can get closer and closer to him and learn to be able to see him and walk in his holiness and this is the beauty of this statement it says rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live true life not the artificial life we had as a before we're saved and we think we're having fun doing all these different sins and knowing that we're empty, but the true life that comes by living in him. And, he's, and he chastens us. It says, for they verily chasten after their own pleasure. And he, uh, protect now, verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. All right. And this is true. When you're being disciplined, Anytime you're being disciplined, even if you're at work and you're being chastened for not doing something right at work, even by a good boss, it's not something you want to hear. You didn't do this right. What happens anytime somebody chastens you? Your, your, your pride puffs up and say, who are you to say that I didn't do this the right way? I've been there many times. You know, what, what are you trying to do? What makes you think you're better than me to tell me that I didn't do it the right way? Well, I'm the boss, I'm the owner, whatever it might be, I'm the parent. We need to be ready to humble ourselves and listen. Even if we don't fully agree with them, there's probably some element of truth in what they're saying. 
And the part that really got me, and it was something I hated doing as a manager, is you can never give somebody a perfect review. Because there's always something somebody can improve on. And you know, the best employee, this person is the one you would leave in charge of everything, and you're going, okay, I've got to find something wrong with this person. So that they can be challenged to go up. And it was funny when my daughter was learning to write performance reviews. She came up and she goes, well, how would you say this about th this, this person? And I gave her a long sentence. She goes, you sound just like my boss. I'm going, it's the language you learn as a manager. How to say something negative about a positive without being too negative about the, po the positive thing. Because <laughs> you had to be able to say, because nobody could get a perfect score. And I understood the logic behind that, because nobody is perfect. They may be the best employee by hand, you know, Head and shoulders above every employee, but they have to give them something to challenge, challenge to move forward to. And so even when we're being chastised and we don't think it's valid, we need to look and say, is there at least a little bit of validity in what they're saying? Because usually there's something, even if they've blown it out of the water <laughs> and, and used a lot of hyperbole and really made it sound really bad, there's usually something at the core of it that might be something we need to pay attention to. And we want to be able to look at that and say, well, let's see, they're saying this, there might, what can I do to make sure that I am not being what they say that I am or what it, doing what they're saying I'm doing? Is there any little thing in my life that can be changed? And this is an important aspect and it, it's a humbling aspect that says I'm not perfect. And I've heard lots of people, they'll admit I'm not perfect. But everything about their actions say, I'm perfect. And if you try to correct them, they'll go, how dare you <laughs> try to correct me? But they'll tell you they're not perfect. They'll, they'll give you the scriptures and everything that they're not perfect, but their whole attitude says, don't try to correct me. And that's a problem. If you ever find yourself doing that, and I've been there, I've done that, I've, I've had struggled with that in many times in my life. You know, how, what do you mean I didn't do this right? Uh, what do you mean I could do it better? Well, I've since then learned that I can do everything better, no matter how good I'm at, I can do it better and be able to improve. And here he's saying that this is the whole purpose. He says it doesn't, it doesn't feel pleasurable, but grievous. Nobody likes to be disciplined. And ideally, you probably don't really want to be the discipliner, the one who's given the discipline. Because to cause pain to somebody should not be something that you enjoy. And I've said this many times, my dad, when it was time for a spanking, always said, this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. And I'm, when I was young, I'm going, yeah, right. When I got older, I said the same thing to my kids. And it was like, I know that they said, yeah, right. But I know that I didn't feel good about giving them a spanking. I didn't feel good about taking away privileges. You know, uh, but it was something that had to be done for their sake. And I've understood that if somebody enjoys doing that stuff, there's something wrong with them. All right? There's something wrong with them if they're enjoying the taking away of something or the inflicting of pain. And there are lots of people that do. And so they, they need to be very careful with that. But he says, nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. He says, discipline produces righteousness. And this is our goal. Anytime we're going to be, if we are being disciplined, we need to go, okay, how can I walk closer to God through this 
learning experience. If I'm disciplining somebody, my goal should be to get them more in line with what God wants or the business or, the, or society, whatever it might be that I'm disciplining. And in the bottom of mind is always get them disciplined for God's righteousness, not just you know, get them in line with, with the world. But how can I get them more in line with God through discipline? And this is so important for us. Discipline is not something that people enjoy doing just because they want to discipline if, they're, if it's godly discipline. It brings us closer to God through the discipline and makes us more righteous, more like him. And it comes through the pain of discipline. And again, I've said this over and over again. Discipline is pain. Whether it's physical, psychological, emotional, it is pain. And the pain is designed to so that we say, I don't want to do this again. Now, the world is using this in another way because they're trying to drive us further away from God. And their discipline is to try to hurt us when we're following God. Now, the good news is we've got the strength of God to help us. But you look at some of these people that are doing following God the best way they know how, and they're being attacked. Look at this poor baker up in California, in Colorado, who keeps being attacked. Every time he wins the case, they come at him in another, another lawsuit, trying to destroy his business, trying to make him feel so pained that he will no longer be obedient to his uh, religious convictions. And this goes on and on. The world is trying to do the same thing, but trying to drive us away from God, which means eventually they're going to be judged by God for that and it's a really tough place where do we draw the line uh, Peter and John you know were, after they healed the lame man we're told you know we're going to let you go but you cannot tell people use Jesus' name and so what did they do the next day they went right back to the synagogue right back to the temple and preached in Jesus' name and when they were asked didn't we tell you to not do that and go we have to obey God rather than man now what I have also put out into this, and don't hear this very often, is even though they were obeying God, they still had to go through the discipline of man for disobeying man. And we have to recognize if we obey God rather than man, it's not a free pass to get out of the... We can't say, oh, you're getting ready to beat me. Nope, I'm just obeying God. You can't, you, can't, you can't beat me. No, you violated man's rules. You suffer the punishment for violating man's rules. Now, they're going to answer to God later on, but we are not scot-free from discipline just because we're going, all oh, I'm obeying God, I've got to obey God. All through the New Testament, all through the first century, Christians suffered for being obedient to God. And the way God set it up, that was what they faced because the government said, no, you can't. They said, God said, we're going to. And then they took the punishment for, what they, for their disobedience. And they didn't go, oh, you can't do this to me. And I love what the apostles said over and over again. Thank God we have been found worthy of suffering for Christ. That is our answer. When we obey God and we get in trouble for obeying God, our answer should be, thank God I have been found worthy to suffer for Christ. And ultimately, that is our benefit. Because God is going to say, I'm going to reward that suffering. You obeyed me rather than men. You took your suffering without complaint. I'm going to reward you. 
And I don't know that some of these people that I have much impression on because they complain and grumble about it. I was obeying God. I shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening to me. Well, probably shouldn't be happening to you, but where in the Bible did you find that answer that it wasn't going to happen when you disobeyed man's laws? We disobey man's laws, be ready for the discipline that's going to come from the world. The wrong risk, uh, discipline, the immoral discipline, the unrighteous discipline, but you're going to get it because you disobeyed man's rules. And this is the thing that, as I'm looking at our world and our country right now and the rules that are coming down the pike, I'm looking at them going, at some point, I'm going to have to go to prison or jail or be fined or something for obeying God. And I'm not, not that I won't just uh, roll over and not fight it, but I'm not going to be sitting there and saying, oh, well, this is unjust. It shouldn't be happening. And I will on one side, but I'm also going to be saying, thank God I've been found worthy. At least that's my hope on that, <laughs> that I will come up with that. But I've heard and seen the different individuals in the, in the Fox's Book of Martyrs and then in the near, nearer future, the Wormbrants and and other, other individuals that have suffered for Christ, and their answer's the same. Thank God I was found worthy to suffer because they understood suffering comes through the obedience to God rather than to man. And the more our world gets unhinged from the word of God and unhinged from God's morals, the more we will suffer as Christians. And we see the first century, the Christian church turned the world upside down by being obedient to God and not fighting against them and saying, this is unfair, you can't do this because I was just obeying God. They were great examples to the grace of God. And they turned the Roman Empire to Christianity as a group. Now, Satan didn't let that just happen. He turned it into the Roman Catholic Church and almost destroyed Christianity through their practices. Not that they are totally undoctrinated, you know, but they, they did the same thing the Jews did. They put the traditions of man above the word of God and worked on that. And part of it was that they made the Christianity the accepted church of the Roman Empire and paid for pastors and priests to be in charge of, of churches. The Roman government paid them. So these guys that were worshiping Zeus on one day said, well, if I want to keep getting my check from the government, I now have to be worshiping, Christ, you know, be a Christian. So all of a sudden, with no training, no study of the Bible, no change of anything they did, they go, okay, we're no longer worshiping Zeus, we're worshiping the, the Christian God Jesus. And they did everything that they were always doing, but just changed the name of who they were worshiping. And that is what man does. They just flip over and say, okay, what? I'm now this. And now we're watching as everything moves away from Christianity back to the world. And not every single pastor, not every single church did that, but enough of them did that it really polluted what was going on and hurt everything going, that was happening and this happened up at the highest levels of that, of that church. You know, this just said, well, we were, we were worshiping Zeus and Mercury. Now we're just worshiping God. And we'll put all these different saints in the place of all of our little idols that we had. And now we're going to. And it warped over the years and everything and had some good and bad points involved with it. But God was still there. God was still being lifted up by certain groups. 
And every once in a while, somebody would start reading the Bible and break away from them and create a whole bunch of uh, followers of Christ. They would die, and the Catholic Church would make them a saint and bring all their people back. <laughs> all right? Uh, it wasn't until Luther broke away and really totally broke away, and then the Reformation started. Now, if we think the Reformation was good, it was, except the Reformation were just as bad and evil against each other as the Catholic Church was against them. They, they killed each other. Uh, they, they, they accused each other of heresies, and they were, there was people, there was so much bloodshed during the Protestant Revolution as there was during the Catholic activities because men were involved in getting away from what God said. We need to understand God's love and his care. I know several pastors that I, that I have some fellowship with in the, in the association. There are some that are so anti-other groups that you know, you'd go, all right, I understand. They have some doctrinal problems. <laughs> but don't you understand that we need to love them and care for them? You know, we can't be attacking other people. Yes, there's problems. Yes, they need to learn. But it doesn't do us any good to go walking around attacking other, other groups and other people. Now, if, if we had a group trying to pull people out of this church, I would call out their mistakes. But right now, we don't have that going on in our church. I would call out the mistakes of some of these groups. But while I'm not worried, I'm not worried about what others are doing. I care about what my church does, my people are, are doing. And if people want to talk to me individually about the flaws and fallacies of some of these groups, I will. But not to try to destroy them, but just so that we are aware of what they teach, why it's not good, and be able to go forward from it. And be able to bring this discipline in and bring guidance. Because without discipline, we do not see what's going on. And there's lots of problems with the other denominations. The cults are probably the worst ones because they pretend to be Christians. And they say all the right words and sound like they're really good Christians. But they deny Christianity. And we need to be very careful about all of that. After this, he says in verse 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. <laughs> in other words, get stronger. <laughs> Have you ever seen somebody who has totally been demoralized? Everything is like they're wrong, and there's, their shoulders are slumped down, their hands are, and their heads bowed down, and you can just see, if you've ever been in, in athletics, and you, and you see a team that's in a slump, and those guys come out on the field, and they just are not ready to play. And you can look at them, the way they're standing, the way their heads are hanging, and you're going, these guys are coming in expecting to lose. And what happens? They lose. <laughs> you know, they come in, and, and maybe it's a team that came in expecting to win. And, and when they're down uh, six or seven points, you can just see everything about them drop down. They're no longer trying. They're no longer working at it. This is the picture that he's, that he's going. Strengthen those hands. Get them ready. Get them up. Uh, maybe you've, if you've watched any boxing. I'm not a great big boxing fan, but I've seen it at times where the guy is being beat so bad that he no longer can hold his hands up to, to defend himself, and he's being really plummeled because he just, he just he's, he's defeated, and he just cannot even get his hands up, and his, he's barely able to move, 
and probably should be throwing in the towel at that point, and he's still out there trying to do something and getting beat even worse. This is that picture he's talking about. Strengthen those hands. Get them up. Get your knees some strengthen those knees <laughs> and get yourself ready for the battle. And this is the whole picture that he's saying. When you're disciplined, don't get into that place where, oh, I just give up. I give up. I can't do anything right. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to just, you know, fold up the, the, the whole thing and I'm just going to go hide for a while. I've seen lots of people do that. That's their response to discipline. Uh, things are getting so bad, I'm just giving up. God can't use me. We need to be very careful about this. If I am trying to do things in my strength and all of a sudden things come against me, then it becomes real easy to make excuses, to, to decide that I can't do anything. The problem is we never could do anything in the first place. Everything we do is a gift of grace. And if I think it's anything to do with me, I'm already defeated. Because Satan will really get hold of that. And we've all gone through it. I've gone through it. God, why do I have such a small church? You know, how come we can't get anybody else coming out to this church? You know, and that goes things get through my head as much as it does anybody else. And there's that, well, should I be studying more? Should I preach more, more energy? Should I, you know, do I need to pray more? Do I need to do this more? Do I need to do this more? And all it boils down to, not by works of righteousness that you have done, but by his grace. And we need to be very careful. Anytime we're tempted to find what can I do better, we want to be very careful. There's a fine line between improving what we're doing and coming to the conclusion that I'm doing everything wrong and it's all my fault. Because that means that I had the wrong process in the first place. We do the best that we can with the guidance of God and do, do things the way we think are right. And the results really come down to him. Job could have said, well, God, I followed you all this time and it was not worth it. Look at all the bad stuff that's happened to me. Joseph could have done the same thing. God, I really listened to you, and now here I am in a slave. Oh, man, God, I was listening to you more. Now I'm, a, now I'm a prisoner, which is worse than a slave. And he could have quit at any time. Could have quit at any time because everything seemed to be going the wrong way. We need to be able to understand that God has a longer-term look than we do. We may think that we've done everything wrong. We may be just the ones laying the foundation for somebody else to be able to reap the harvest for. It may be that when we're all gone, the seeds we've laid all of a sudden become what everybody gets to, to reap. We don't know. And that's the problem we have when we look at whether we're successful or not. Because we don't know whether we're successful or not. Go back to the military. It's very interesting that people that are on the front line get a rib battle ribbon. Everybody that supplies them gets the battle ribbon for supplying that, supplying that, uh, that unit. Everybody who arranged to get them there gets the battle ribbon for getting them there. The officers, this is why the generals have nine million ribbons because every, every battle they plan, they get a ribbon for. But without their planning, there wouldn't, wouldn't be a successful battle. Without their getting the supply chain, there wouldn't have been a su successful battle. So. They're, everybody who's involved gets rewarded. I don't think God's any less of a rewarder when we get to heaven. 
Just because we planted a seed or we watered a seed and they, maybe we did it 20 years before they got saved, we'll still get a reward for that person getting saved and we didn't even know that they got saved until we get to heaven. And God says, well, here, here's your reward for this person getting saved. Here's the reward for this person getting saved. Well, God, I didn't see them, but you, you watered. You were a good example. They saw a, a, an ambassador for me, and they were able to be, come to me because of your, partly because of your example. And God is going to be able to say, here's, here's your chest full of ribbons <laughs> for what you've done. And you're going, God, I didn't know I had this many ribbons. He's going to go, but I did. We cannot be looking at our life and say, well, I'm a total failure because I did not get this, that, or the other thing done because we have no way of knowing the impact we're making on people's lives. We have no way of knowing that when we are obedient to God, there are people watching us. And I've had people that tell me, well, I, there's nobody watching me. Well, if there's nobody watching you, then you need to be a little more open with your Christianity in the first place. Because once you tell people that you're a Christian, they're watching you. They want to say, is what's going on real? Do you really have something that makes you different from me? Now, you may not see the results of it, but they're looking at you and saying, wow, that person didn't go crazy when that, that person badmouthed them. They didn't go out for revenge. They didn't try to get back at them. And they're looking, yeah, there's something different. Not sure I'm wanting it yet, but there's something different about that person. And the testimony will later on be, if you listen to these testimonies of people, you know, I watched this person and their changed life made an impact on me. I didn't come to saved at that time, but I, their, their life had an impact. And over and over again, you'll hear people say just that. I watched you change. And even though it was years later, <laughs> I, it was your change in your life that made me decide that I wanted to look for God. And this is very important for us. For anybody who's got family that's not coming to Christ, live the Christian life before them and let them know that you're a Christian and you might just do something that will impact them. Don't get disappointed just because they're not responding to anything that you say. Live out the Christian life to the best of your ability and let them see the difference. And this is what's really going to be the big deal later on. And I guarantee you, start listening to what the people say about their, what drew them to Christ. Uh, you know, Samuel likes to play unshackled, and every once in a while you hear somebody who cared about their family and they witnessed to them, and then three years later their family member got saved. Not because they were preaching at them every single time, but they gave them the gospel message and their life, changed life is what changed them. And said, if they can do it, I want what they have. And they're not looking at you being perfect, but they're looking at you being different enough to say, that's good. Now, they may not tell you that when they, you know, they may give you a hard time about the message of Christ. They may tell you, you know, you're a fool, you're, in, you're dumb, you're, you know, uh, this isn't the way you raised me if it's your kid, this isn't, uh, this isn't what you were like, you know, you're, you're, you're just going to fall away, but they're watching. They're watching us a lot closer than we ever anticipate. They want to know what are we going to say to them? How are we going to handle? What are we going to do when somebody uh, plays you dirty and, and makes you look bad? 
Do you get just like them and try to get back? Or do you say, all right, God, I'm going to put it in your hands? And they look at him going, okay, that's not what you used to do. That's not what I would do. And they watch and see your peace and your joy. And this is the wonderful thing. As I look at people whose lives in this church who have really, truly changed over the years, and I look and say, wow, that person, they're not acting the way they, they used to. And I'm going, they're an example. They are an example. And they're, they're listening, they're growing, and somebody is going to look at their life and say, they, they are no longer the same person. They have been changed by God. And they may not even fully understand what that means, but you're going to know that you said, I went to church. And they're going to know, this, they started going to church. They started talking about the Bible. They started not hanging out with me at the drinking parties and the drugging parties. And, you know, and I thought that they were just thinking they were better than me. But boy, they have really changed. And those impacts plant seeds. You know, now, this comes dangerously close to using lifestyle evangelism. And lifestyle evangelism is a good thing. I changed my life to be more like God, and people eventually might ask questions. The most important side is that we also open our mouth and we speak. <laughs> Too many times the people in lifestyle evangelism say, well, I'm just going to be a good example, and, and one day these people are going to all come up to me. Well, maybe, but probably not. <laughs> they need to know what is different. Why am I different? Why do I care? And the, this is when I share the Bible with them. I share what God has done for me and be able to say whatever I say about God. Now, they're not probably, you know, very few, very few of them are going to jump right up and say, oh, I want to know, I want what you have. I've had very few people do that that are close to me. Now, I've gone on the street and had some people do that. But I'm sure that other people had been the example for them to want, want God. But we live a lifestyle that lets people know that we're different. We tell them that we are different. And that puts us, a lot of people don't want to do that because as soon as you tell people that you're God's and you're, and you're going to live a different lifestyle, Satan is going to try to get you to fall flat on your face, to be a bad example. But even in that, the good news is we repent, we apologize to God, and then we get the hard part. We might have to apologize to that person who watched us fall flat on our face. Our kids, our family, our co-workers. <laughs> you know, I just have to apologize. I was a bad example at this time when I fell into that sin. It's humbling and it's hard. And it's something we need to be ready to do, to apologize and to repent to God and to those that are affected by our fall. All of this comes down under discipline. Discipline is not fun. Being humbled is not fun. Having to apologize to people for being a bad example is not fun. But the end result is the righteousness of God shining through. And all of this comes down to strengthening ourselves. In verse 13 it says, Make straight the paths for your feet, lest that which is be lame is be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Strengthen ourselves be able to walk. Um, if you've ever tried to walk, you know, I've, I had a broken foot one time when I was on crutches and everything, and I couldn't, walk, couldn't barely walk a straight line because that one foot just didn't want to do what it was supposed to do. <laughs> uh, and this is his idea. If you're lame, it's so easy to be twisted out of the path. Uh, 
one commercial I saw today, and I don't even remember what it was, I think it was some kind of cane, he goes, the guy's standing outside looking at the end of his walk into a mailbox, and he says, when you're in pain, even a short walk is, is a painful thing. And it shows somebody else using their cane going down there, I don't even know what, the, what they were advertising. But you know, it is true. When we are in pain and things are difficult, it's hard to keep moving forward. And this is what he's saying. Make it straight, get it healed, get it taken care of, and be able to go forward and stay in the way. How easy is it for us to leave the way of Christ when obstacles get in our, in our path? And it's like, well, it would be so much easier to go over there. <laughs> You know, there's no, it, look, it looks like a nice, clean path. It leads, it leads to quick can, quicksand, but it looks like a wonderful path. This way looks rocky and hard. And there's nothing about the narrow way that's easy. Because it goes against everything we want to do. The broad way looks so inviting. And we're going, God, I don't want to walk through this narrow pathway. It, it's, it's tight. It's, it's hard to walk through. That, that way is really broad. Look at it. It's got wide, wide road. But I, I've mentioned this before. How do the, you know, especially, let's use our area. We have open ranges out here. How do they herd their cattle when it's time to herd them up? They create a great big wide fence that narrows down to a pen, and they herd their cattle toward that big wide fence. The wide way leads to a very narrow ending of destruction. The wide way road leads to destruction. Narrows down, narrows down to destruction. What happens at the narrow gate? We go through the narrow gate with Christ, and it opens up into total freedom and liberty. It opens up to a broad pasture where we get to enjoy life rather than being led down into destruction. This is so important. It's so easy to leave the way that God wants us to do because our flesh doesn't want to do those things. And it takes the spirit to get to those things. And then the last verse I want to read, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We are to be at peace with people. Not trying to anger them and everything, but it also has to be a note that says that it is peace and holiness. Peace with all men and holiness. It does not mean that because that I will allow anything in these people's lives because I need to be at peace with them. It also is qualified with and holiness. And this is something the church in America is struggling with. They're eliminating sin from their vocabulary so that they can be at peace with all men. Now they're taking them right straight to hell because they're leaving out and holiness. We will not tell people that what they're doing is sin because we want to be at peace with them. We don't want to cause pain to them. We don't want to cause friction with them. This and holiness is the keynote of that verse. And holiness. So we come up to people and we will share with them, we are wanting to be at peace with you, but I'm not compromising God's word, 
God's word is his word. And we have many churches, and I'm not saying every mega church, but a lot of the mega churches are big because they will not mention sin. Because they don't want to offend anybody. Now Jesus was quite interesting. Every time he got a crowd gathered around, to, around him, if you read the Gospels, he kept saying things that got people mad at him. And large groups would leave. And on one particular question, he looked at the disciples and go, are you guys going to leave me too? <laughs> Which indicates that he lost almost everybody in the crowd. And he looks over the disciples and are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter goes, who else are we going to follow? We have nowhere else to go. All right. But the essence of this is, yes, we're to be at peace with people if, in as much as possible, but not to the sacrificing of God's standards and his holiness. We must lift up his rules. When God calls something a sin, we can't just say, oh, well, it's the way things are in today's world. Now, we can't go, well, people are all living together, and okay, it must be okay because everybody says it's okay. No, God calls it fornication. And we can't be justifying fornication because everybody thinks it's okay, and if we say it's, and if we say it's a sin, everybody's going to be upset with us. We have to follow his holiness and lift up his standards. Now, it doesn't mean we attack them with them, but we do say, make sure they understand, this is sin. God is not okay with your sin. He's loving. He cares about you. Jesus died for you. But he is not going to just look the other way when, you, when you're sinning. And we live at peace with people, but not at the sacrificing of holiness. And this is the important part of this, because it says, without which holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Now, our holiness is through Jesus Christ and his righteousness. But it is also the fact that we follow after his holiness. We're not to go out and see how much sin we can commit so that we get lots of grace. We go out and we live according to God's rules, knowing that he is going to reward that obedience in this life. All right? We don't be obedient so that we can get into heaven. We don't even do obedience so that we get more rewards in heaven, even though there will be rewards in heaven. But where do those rewards come from? Everything that I let God do through me. I don't get to even earn the rewards. Wood, hay, and stubble is all burnt up. Much of what we do if we're trying to earn rewards is wood. It's good stuff. We build houses out of wood. We build furniture out of wood. We build all kinds of things out of wood. It's strong. It's sturdy. It's, it's useful. It's going to burn up in the fire. But <laughs> and much of what we do in our life is wood if we're doing it for the wrong reasons. But when we let God work through us, we hear gold, silver, and, and precious jewels that he gives us. He did the work, and he rewards us with what he did. I love God's plan. It's really the way people think all the time. I, I, I found more employees that worked really hard at looking busy than rather doing their job. I even told many of them, go, you know, if you did half the, half the effort into doing your work, this work would be a whole lot easier than pretending to work all day long. They'd be holding a cloth and touching surfaces all day long and not getting anything done. It's like, why don't you clean a few things once in a while <laughs> instead of pretending to clean? You know, 
And you know, I've watched, I have watched more employees pretend to be busy. And I think, you know, how long is your day trying to pretend to do your work rather than do your work? I can't stand having the days when I have to find things to do. You know, COVID is running rampant out there in the prison and I don't get to teach my classes. And it is so boring to do everything except my job. And some of the times it's, most of the time lately, it's been make sandwiches all day long. <laughs> Eight hours of making sandwiches so that we can feed 1,600 prisoners <laughs> every day with their sandwiches. And so we're sitting there rolling up bread and, and, and peanut butter mixtures and cookies and all the stuff into their little sack lunches. And we get to do that all day long instead of teaching our classes. <laughs> I'm there to be teaching a class, not to be making sandwiches. <laughs> and it's long, it's boring, it's tedious. <laughs> you know, and I'm going, all right, let's just go back to my teaching classes. But you know, right now they're, they're stuck in their rooms. They're stuck in their dorms because of the COVID. Oh, and so they have a lot over there? There's enough. <laughs> yeah. Enough that they lock them. All they need is one in each dorm to lock it down. Uh, but, you know, so we're doing what we have to do, but it is really hard. I'm sitting there going, I just have fun teaching. It makes three hours, a three-hour class go by so much faster because I'm having fun instead of rolling up these, these sandwich ingredients and making a lunch. Uh, you know, it's just tedious, long, and you never get to the end because we get to the next day and it's time to make another 1,600 sandwiches. And you spend eight hours doing that and you come back the next day and it's make another 1,600 sandwiches. You know, uh, so we go through all of this and this whole idea of being holy and being at peace with God, being an example, doing what he has asked us to do and doing it because we love him so much that we want to do it. Not because we're looking for anything on it, but just, God, I love you so much. I want to do what you want to do. Not I'm doing this to get rewarded. Not that I'm doing this to get you know, uh, praise from people. You know, I have so much fun teaching the Bible studies. And yes, there's a lot of work in preparing for it and everything, but all of this, I think, is so much fun. You know, I hate having to go earn a living at the prison. You know, uh, that is like 40 hours a week that's wasted to me so that I get a good check so that I don't have to have, you know, so that I can have a small church that... <laughs> where I don't make a lot of money and still be able to teach. But this is fun. That gets, even when I'm doing what I like, the teaching part is still 40 hours a week out there at the prison where I'm not in the Bible, not teaching, not, not ministering, not, not reaching out and, and helping people. And I'm looking forward to the day when I'm out of debt and I get to retire from the prison and just be a pastor and come up here 60 hours a week. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I, I don't see any less hours involved in it, <laughs> but I see doing what I am called to do. And this is where being able to live at peace with holiness and righteousness and being an example and lifting God up in all that's done. And that should be our goal. What has God called you to do? And it's going to be different for every single person. What has God called you to do? Make sure you're doing what you're called to do with your whole heart. 
and it could be any number of things that we have out there. Um, in the churches, you know, people always look and say, well, I want to be the pastor, I want to be, well, some people don't, but they look at the pastors and teachers go, everybody knows who they are, they, you know, they've got the important jobs. Well, I don't know about that because the landscaping still needs to be done. The maintenance still needs to be done. All these things have to be done. People still have to be told about Jesus that don't get the limelight. All those jobs are important. There's not a job that you can do that God has called you to do that's not important. And if we try to compare to other people going, well, it's not that important. Well, you know what? If we didn't have people cleaning the church, we'd very quickly know how important they were. These floors need to be vacuumed every week at least once, if not more. The floors need to be swept and cleaned up. Uh, All of our cups when we come in and have coffee need to be cleaned up. All these little jobs that different people do that are important. And many of those are never going to be recognized as, as, as important this side of heaven by a lot of people. Now, there's probably nobody in the church can name who's the one that's vacuuming these carpets every, every week. Uh, because it's changed. it changes frequently because those people end up stopping doing it and all of that. Because a lot of times is they just don't feel like they're being appreciated and they're not getting the recognition that they feel they deserve. And Satan uses that against them. You know, nobody, nobody pays attention to what I'm doing. If, you know, nobody cares whether I do this or not. And it's real easy to get into that, that idea. Which is why I tell everybody, what has God called you to do? Serve Him. And there have been many churches before I got this one where I was just a Sunday school teacher. Not, not real recognized by hardly anybody except for my Sunday school class. I was oftentimes the cleaner of the place or the lawnmower or whatever else needed to be done. I did whatever needed to be done. And not very many people knew everything that I did. Now, there are people who did, but most of the people didn't know half of what I've done in some you know, churches. A lot of people don't know half of what I do here <laughs> because I do a lot more than just teach and everything because it's a small church and things have to get done. And I'm going, okay, if nobody else is doing it, I'm going to do it. And then somebody comes up and says, well, what if I did this? I'm going, be my guest. It'll take one more thing off my plate. Then I'll find something else. But <laughs> there's always plenty to do. There's, and this is the problem in living for God. There's always plenty to do. And one of the things that I've learned a long time ago is if somebody wants to do something that I'm doing and they think they can do it better than me, thank God, there's plenty of other things that need to be done. I have never run out of things to do in a church. Doesn't matter what my position has been. If somebody thinks they can do it, okay, fine. You, you want to be the one that takes care of the floors? You take care of the floors, and I'll go find something else to do. Oh, you want, you want to do this? I had somebody tell me I could teach your class better, and I go, be my guest. I'll go find some other, something else to do. If the church agrees with you, I'll go do something else. I am not going to sit down and say, well, I'm the greatest thing some sliced bread. I'm the only one that can do it. I know for a fact that I'm not the only one that can pastor this church. God has put me here as it is. And he's called me to be here, and I, will, and I will do the best I can while I'm here. But there may be a time when he says it's time to move on, and that somebody else needs to take over. I hope it's not too soon, because I enjoy this church. But, <laughs> but you know, there could come that time when it's, it's time to move on and go somewhere else. We need to be ready to listen to that and be able to respond. 
and be able to say, well, there are key people in positions. It's not just me that's leading. And the wonderful thing I have learned over the years is every time you think somebody's really important to the church and God moves them on, he replaces them. And the really funny thing is when he replaces somebody that you think is really important, he usually replaces them with two or three people and they all do wonderful jobs in, in, in replacement. Now instead of having one worker, you have three workers. So sometimes it's really good to have somebody replaced that's a key person. Not that I'm trying to get rid of anybody in our church, but, but it, I don't worry about it. If God takes somebody, he's always got somebody else to replace them. And oftentimes more than one because that's the beauty of the body of Christ. It's God's church, his people, and he will make sure that the people are in place. Now getting them to always step up is another story. <laughs> You know, it's hard to get people to step up sometimes to take a position. Uh, and, but that is very important as well. What has God called you to do? Pray about it. Figure it out. And then step up to do whatever it is he's called you to do. We all have a purpose in the body of Christ. And all of it's not going to be centered in this church. You know, Sharon's wonderful. She passes out these bulletins and invites people and you know, gets everything out there to, to the world, and yes, the church benefits on it, but she's also getting the kingdom of God benefiting from all the stuff that she's doing as well. And I don't even know if she knows all the people that she's going to get rewarded for in heaven when she gets there. You know, with all these tracts and all these bulletins and things that she's passed out. What is it that God has called you to do? Be faithful in what He has called you to do. And do it with all your heart. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, teach us to be humble, to trust you in all that we do. Help us to see you in all that we do and to be willing to look for you in all that happens, in all the discipline that we face. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. 
You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.